So good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you so much for having us to your grand rounds and, and for your interest in the topic of debriefing in your clinical environment. And uh, Jenny and I will be uh, talking with you, interacting with you, demonstrating with you uh, about something we're quite passionate about, which is circle up uh, a debriefing method for the clinical environment. I um, been teaching with Jenny uh, for over a decade. She's my teacher and mentor and uh, colleague and friend. I uh, was the senior director at the Institute, which is our faculty development and training arm at the Center for Medical Simulation. And uh, until last month, when I took on a new role as the director of innovation and education at the Boston Medical Center. So I switched my practice from Brigham Women's Hospital, where I had been for the last five years, and, uh, and took on a new role. So I'm uh, just on the other side of town now and uh, remain quite connected at CMS as a senior fellow, uh, teaching in all our programs and doing um, uh, scholarly work alongside Jenny, which is a pleasure. So glad to be here. Hello, everybody. Um, I'll just add a little bit to um, Shayla's wonderful introduction. Thank you, Shayla. So you can decide whether to believe anything I say today. I'm actually an organizational behavior scholar by training, but for the last 20 years, I've been really interested in how do we learn in healthcare and what are called other high hazard industries. And what I hope to connect with you about today is I really see learning from everyday clinical practice as a career, lifelong, people-growing machine. Disturbances, difficulties, joyful moments are all the same in things that making us better and making us better at getting better if we use them that way. And so my mission at the Center for Medical Simulation for maybe the last 15 years has been how do we use that across the Harvard teaching hospitals to help all of us perform better in teams and take even better care of our patients. So, well, thank you so much for having me and uh, appreciate the welcome. So you'll see that Jenny and I will be going back and forth and team teaching here. Uh, when we get excited and we're both talking, we're not interrupting each other. We're just adding to each other's ideas. Uh, I work with her holding this basic assumption and, and I do with clinicians and participants uh, that I believe everyone's participating is intelligent, capable, trying to do their best, wants to improve even when it doesn't quite feel exactly as I was expecting it. And I hope that you can keep that in mind as a uh, possible attitude or mindset or philosophy towards uh, what you're bringing to work and also how you're experiencing our presentation today. Formally, uh, at the end of today, I'm hoping you can describe debriefing in the emergency department, what it looks like, feels like, what it means to you. Uh, the awesome and important skill of getting it started, just initiating a team debriefing. I, I will be really satisfied if we are all at least ready to do that or thinking about being ready to do that. And um, some of the theoretical and motivational underpinnings which are around recognizing how important the interactions are on team culture. And, and I'm talking both about when we're getting down and dirty and working together and also when we're reflecting and processing Damien, can, can I build on that last one for a second? Please. Just to enact that in our conversation today, everyone, Damien and I will be slightly interdependent with you. There's going to be some moments where we'll ask you to either speak to us directly if you prefer or to text us in the chat. And one of those moments is coming up shortly while we'll be asking you to share your point of view in the chat. So if you can be ready for that, that would be fantastic. And so just to give you a little roadmap here, uh, we've got a tiny bit of background and some definitions just so that we uh, make sure that we're all talking about the same abstract concepts uh, and having a good idea of what we mean and uh, essentially sharing some of our current mental models on the topic. We have a video-based example uh, so we could really see it concrete, concretely, give us something to talk about. And then a bit of a presentation around how culture and conversation interact with each other. 
blending in theory and practice and some practical advice on how to initiate a clinical debriefing and a few other tips. And since we've been so grateful to get a few extra minutes, I hope we can at the end have a few reflections and comments because ultimately Jenny and I are interested in uh, not just what we're saying, but how it's landing on you and, and what impact these words will have. So let's get to it. Um, I think this, and everybody knows what this is. Um, this has been a really challenging couple of years for, for me personally and for the field, the global COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's really um, changed everything. And, and there's people behind those stats. It's not just uh, the numbers. I, as emergency physicians, we felt the um, burden both at work and at home. And um, we know that there are a ton of challenges. And, and that's where we wanted to get started. Uh, just asking you today, 102821, what do you see as really the challenges and opportunities um, in our clinical setting in the everyday um, that are really you know, making an impact on your work and life? And that's how I'm thinking about it, Jenny. If you have a different way you want to put it out there. I, no, that's I just, lovely. And if you give, if you just uh, click, uh, Damien, the, the, the question will be also visible to them. Folks, we'd love to hear from you in the chat or, or verbally, if that's easier for you if you're driving. What are the opportunities and necessities for you at this moment? I'm hearing medical misinformation. I can't yep. and, and I heard from the classroom or Eric burnout secondary to unruly and ungrateful patients toward nurses and staff. And Anki is saying an opportunity is to transform the delivery and practice of emergency medicine and healthcare in general. Limited resources. Damien, I'm, um, feel free to uh, pause me in this reading if you wish. No. Moral distress, I'm hearing from Amanda, related to staffing shortages and being unable to provide the care we want to. Of course, this huge problem of loss of nursing from the classroom, and then Neil is suggesting mental and emotional health. So Damien, I think these are some of the things that um, you know, are resonating for many of us and, and, and maybe we'll pour into where you're going next. Yeah, and- Thank you, um, Thank you all. Seems like they're also they're either practicing in Boston or or they uh, we're all in this in the same boat here. I think especially this last bit around mental health, which I think applies um, to the psychiatric boarding situation. At least of you know that we have a huge shortage of psychiatric beds, and so our patients are waiting uh, and in our space. But also the 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 toll on on the clinicians. So um, we recognize this um, sort of in early on during the COVID pandemic. And, and this is a bit of the story of how we got into really shifting our lens from, in addition to debriefing in, in a simulation-based context, because Jenny and I's primary work has been at the Center for Medical Simulation, which is a independent nonprofit in the center of the Harvard system. Our kind of main thing is uh, teaching and consulting. We serve our insurance company to decrease malpractice risk, we do international consulting, we do courses on debriefing. That's kind of our background and just so you know kind of what we do. But during COVID, we said, look, we our center is closed, we're interacting with people online, but what can we do now? And uh, with a small group, interprofessional group over at the Brigham where I used to practice, we stood up a nightly debriefing program. We called it Brief. Um, and uh, it was online every night at 9 p.m. And we really tried to get people connecting, interacting, discussing. And we also really uh, served as the ears and eyes for the administrators who were working day and night to implement new protocols to get feedback, to see what's working, what's not working, what's missing. And so we were doing this dual job of listening and connecting with each other, but also translating back what was happening in the day-to-day. -day. And, uh, and that was a, one of our first forays into this different impacts came about in terms of the clinical context, the provider experience, staffing and scheduling, you know, with the volume being down, we were trying longer shifts, shorter shifts, and uh, this gave a chance for people to 
to both vent and be productively uh, constructive. We got feedback on the protocols and I think we strengthened our teamwork and collaboration because being an interprofessional discussion moment, uh, we could learn about different uh, angles which we wouldn't otherwise be privy, especially in the kind of masked PPE world. And we think for a lot of people, it's served as a source of resilience. I, I'm not sure I would say wellness per se, because that's really more of a proactive uh, mode, but in terms of being able to bounce back from difficult situations, because as I could only assume you experienced too, uh, being in the front lines uh, was pretty challenging, new and traumatizing. At the Center for Medical Simulation, we also took to a, a bigger project, which is to create Circle Up, which is a uh, larger workflow adaptation that, that took, takes a look at the whole shift and, and starts with briefings, has huddles um, and end of shift debriefings and peer support. So really taking the idea that conversations can impact care delivery and that if we structure them and make them routine, uh, we can have an impact on our workplaces. And we'll, we'll have a bit more depth in terms of circle up, uh, but I wanted to give both of those examples as both our uh, lineage into how we got into the topic and has, uh, for me, really made it the focus of my uh, scholarly pursuits and, um, and also our background there. So I, I think the, you know, if we want to define success, you're, you're thinking about implementing a clinical debriefing program, uh, Sheila has met with Jenny and I a few times and we really understand you're hoping to transform your work to, to really try to get at a lot of the problems you've highlighted in the chat and in your comments, we, we need to know what success looks like. And so to define that, I think we need to know what's the purpose. Um, I think there's multiple purposes in terms of clinical debriefing. And I'll just highlight some of the ones uh, that have come from the literature. You could think about debriefing's purpose as peer support, getting together to connect, reflect. I think there's an outcome of team cohesion, camaraderie, the, the relationship amongst you. So after you take care of a patient, that could be a big focus. Uh, learning and learning to learn, I think is, uh, it would be easy to just move on from a uh, routine or challenging situation. I think normal across the world is to go to work, go home, come back, start over. And so um, a structured conversation could help us get learning from the everyday. By sharing and uh, different perspectives, you get a chance to compare them. There's a real interest in clarifying events that I've seen from the OB literature that when teams debrief before documenting after difficult deliveries, there's a much more protection because the inconsistency in the chart is a big risk. Um, from assistance point of view, finding latent safety threats are, is a, a great opportunity because we would hate to have the same source of error. That's why there's a relatively large investment in root cause analysis, but that's generally done down the line. Um, and so getting to that earlier during the near misses uh, could be an opportunity. Um, I mentioned listening. Uh, outsourcing, listening to the debriefing uh, was a big outcome for us. So providing feedback to leadership and, and who doesn't like to, to let them know how it's going, right? Um, and supporting uh, just culture, psychological safety and offering resources. Sometimes uh, you just need a little encouragement from your colleagues. Damien, uh, could I just throw in one thing there, if you don't mind going back? We are writing up the results of a uh, study we did in the neuroscience IC ICU in one of our hospitals here at Harvard. And I wanted to just share this idea of team cohesion, teaming camaraderie, esprit de corps, because it sounds a little squishy. And one of our most robust findings from this uh, routine debriefing intervention was people felt their emotions were kind of down-regulated in a good way, contained, they would save up things to talk about at the 10 minute end of day debriefing. And they reported to us that just knowing they were gonna be getting together with people to do that, made them feel better, made them feel more supported, relaxed them the rest of the day because they knew they didn't have to hold it metaphorically by themselves. And so that sense of togetherness is not just a kind of kumbaya-y thing, 
it really made a big difference for this team. Um, and so that's the kind of thing we'll share more as we go forward. So thank you, Jenny, um, for adding that um, specific example there. I think working definitions, and, and I really mean working because I think the, in, in one sense, we've been debriefing in the clinical environment forever, right? Like as a resident, we would certainly go to the bar back before COVID when that was a thing. Um, and people would talk about their cases in a HIPAA compliant way. Um, I know I'm married to an emergency physician, so we're always talking about cases and our experiences. But I think formalizing the practice of debriefing in the clinical environment is, is really of the last seven, six, seven years, and, and I think really coming uh, to the front. And as passionate as we are about debriefing, I think debriefing has a bad name, just like feedback. You know, who, who wants to get called to an office and have a feedback conversation? I mean, generally people are not excited about that. And I think the similar could be happening about debriefing. So I think, although I, we want to talk about debriefing in the clinical environment, I'm not sure that when we get to it on the day-to-day -day basis, that that's the word we should be using. And so we've chosen circle up, you know, um, because that, that seems to be a, a helpful, exciting thing to do. Whereas, you know, in, in my current workplace, everybody's telling me, just whatever you do, don't call it huddles because huddles have a bad name. In some other places, debriefing might have a good, a good brand associated or a bad brand. You would know your own context. But in general, I think we're talking about conversations that occur in the clinical environment, meaning not in a simulation center, not in a teaching space, that look back towards what happened in a clinical shift or moment. And if you look at the literature, some of it is related to hot or cold debriefing, which is a um, metaphor for the emotional uh, activation of the moment. So hot debriefings are thought to be right after an event where people are still all uh, heated up about what happened and cold would be later on processing. And I've argued that we should abandon this type of language because it doesn't contribute to, to improving the conversation. Clinical event debriefing um, is usually trigger-based. Uh, systems that implement clinical event debriefing define the events and they don't, I wanna make it clear that they're not necessarily bad events or bad outcomes. Uh, you can have a routine event debriefing about any time more than, uh, it, it's a, uh, you require two passes for a successful intubation that could trigger, maybe that's a quote bad outcome. Maybe you're defining every intubation. Maybe you're defining every time CPR is done. Um, you could be defining, at, at BMC, we're now debriefing. One of the areas we are debriefing is every time restraints are applied or de-escalation of an aggressive uh, patient. Again, going back to the mental health crisis. Real-time or proximal debriefing, I think this is more of a time-based notation. And that's what I would recommend in terms of how we're thinking about this. Um, Frequently, if you don't get it done right away, it just won't happen. Got, there's a lot of energy in terms of gathering people um, and, and a lot of other pressures in, the, in our clinical lives. And so um, really almost immediate debriefing after you take care of your patient, yourself, and you're ready um, is, is likely the, one of the most successful. Towards the end of the shift or routine uh, debriefings where you reflect on the whole scope of a of a work time period, um, that's another opportunity. And, and I, I think just like end of shift feedback, you wanna incorporate that into the end time, but not after. So we wanna incorporate this into work. And I wanna contrast this with critical stress incident debriefing, which is a psychological technique to prevent PTSD. This is the work of trained psychologists. And, and that's not what we're talking about. In really clinical debriefing, excludes that and uh, really is focused on uh, team-based, peer-based conversations that don't require mental health professionals. Jenny, to you. Okay, so folks, uh, we're about to enter a little uh, maybe 
12 minute flow here together where I'm gonna introduce you to circle up debriefings. And then I'm gonna invite you in to help us uh, do a little circle up debriefing. Uh, I'll explain a little more about that in a moment. And when I say invite you into it, I'll invite you to text to us or chat to us, whatever uh, that might be. So circle up, the system of circle up peer connection and workflow adaptation includes the following. Uh, Damien, if you don't mind, click. Uh, so we have a briefing or a huddle, which allows us to either plan for the shift or plan for the event. So planning for an event like we have a COVID positive patient who's coming in for a C-section, that wouldn't be so much in the emergency department. Or today we're gonna to be transporting uh, patient X. Um, we, we know we're gonna have several patients needing to go to CT. How do we transport a COVID positive patient from the emergency department to CT fast and safe? It also includes peer check-ins across the shift. How are we doing? How are people feeling? That could also happen after a clinical event. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the debriefings themselves share successes and explore challenges for the day. Going back to the briefing for one moment, the idea of mental rehearsal, just thinking about what's coming up. So if we had a combative patient this shift, what is our plan? Who's involved? How are we gonna handle that? Would be an example of mental rehearsal. All right, Damien. So to support you, for example, if you were thinking about implementing uh, uh, clinical event debriefings, we have some guidance and some scripts for Circle Up and I'll be using that in a moment to guide the debriefing, uh, sort of simulated debriefing that we'll be doing together in a second. But if you need this sort of cognitive aid and we think it's very helpful, these are available uh, you know, for your team. Okay, Damien, uh, next slide, please. So what we're gonna do now is you're going to join us in a little fiction, a little simulation. We're going to imagine that you are uh, observers in the emergency department, maybe you're walking by, maybe you're part of a team that Shayla organized to sort of help teams that are taking care of trauma patients to get better and to get better at getting better. So what I invite you to do in a moment is to imagine um, that I am that nurse that you see in front of you there, Mary, and Damien's twin, Damien, uh, will be running this uh, gunshot wound um, resuscitation. I say it's his twin because I've seen Damien run many resuscitations and his twin is, uh, has different skills than uh, Damien does. Um, after this, uh, we're going to pause and I'm going to step into the role of Mary. I'm going to put on my scrubs at that point. And I'm going to try my best to initiate a peer-led debriefing. And I'm going to invite you all to participate. That'll be clearer in a moment as to how that will happen. All right. Any questions, uh, Shayla or others from the classroom or Eric Smith, who I also know has access to typing? Any questions? or anybody. Okay, sounds good, thank you. All right, Damien, let's uh, play that video, please. And I'm, I'm playing the first two minutes or so. Is that right. okay? Yep, Is that that's perfect, okay? Damien, thank you. Okay. What's going on here? We got a 23 year old male gunshot wound to the chest. Blood pressure is 100 over 60. Heart rate is 112. Respiratory rate is 28. Has the trauma team been activated? I don't think so. Can you activate yeah, I'll call them. And also get the yeah. EG position. Okay, yep. Uh, hanging, no meds given. All right. What do we have? Here? No family came on the ambulance with us. Sir, what's your name? John. Okay, there we Peyton. And second ID. Just put a second ID in here, please. And then do you want labs? Yes, I'm allowed. Hey, Melissa, you're not going to be done this way. Oh, yeah, I can get the pressure bag. Okay. Okay, there's no pressure on the left. I need a chest to set up for here. And we need two IVs. Yep. So let's recycle the pressure. Keep them on the monitor. Start transferring. The whole trauma set. What do we got? Okay. 23 year old male, single left. Uh, gunshot wound to the chest. Sorry, single gunshot wound to the left chest. 
Okay, everybody. Um, hi, my name's Mary. I know many of you know me. I've worked in the emergency department for about 15 years. And um, I'm going to try to initiate a, a debriefing for us. You know, we just had that uh, GSW, uh, you know, uh, about 20 minutes ago. And I know we're trying to learn from what we're doing. So I'm going to take about five to seven minutes and just invite you all in. And Damien is, um, is here with me. And I know, you know, a lot of you are uh, starting to do this debriefing too. So if you were, you know, if you happen to see what was happening, you know, we'd really love you to help me and Damien and the rest of the team get better. Um, I'm going to use a script because I'm kind of new to this clinical debriefing process and that's just to help us get through this. Um, Damien, are you good to go? Yeah, I, I'm uh, settled uh, my other patients and uh, I don't have a ton of time, but I uh, so great that you're, um, that we're all here. Okay, and the classroom and others, you guys get to go for seven minutes-ish? Yes. Okay, excellent. So um, listen, we really wanna hear from everybody. And our, our first goal is to kind of capture some successes and generate some ideas for improvement. You know, I know there's always ways we could get better. So let's just start with, uh, you know, what went well, Damien, for you and for me, you know, what did we see? And others of you, if if there's anything you think the team did well that we should keep doing, if you could just let us know. Damien, how about you? Um, I, I mean, everyone getting called right away, I thought that was great. Um, and, uh, you know, getting the patient sorted out, I'm very happy about that. Okay. Um, yeah, other thoughts from people? Any Anything we should keep doing? People move with a sense of urgency. Oh, excellent, thank you. Hey, yeah, that was great. Like everyone jumped in. Um, yep, vital sign identification, activation of the trauma team. Yeah, I thought, uh, Damien, uh, just that reminds me, one thing I thought was great is you identified right away we needed that chest tube. So, um, you know, that was good. Oh yeah, people jumped into their roles, excellent. Um, so Damien, um, you know, I know uh, team leadership is something we've been working on um, over the last uh, couple months and anything you were happy with there that we wanna just capture before we moved on? Staff seem trained, that's great. Um, I mean, I, I think of leadership as something everyone does, not, not just the doc. So, you know, the nurses, you and your, the whole team was really like bringing things in, doing a lot, um, really thinking about the patient. So I, there were a lot of good aspects of that. Uh, okay, good. Guys, I'm moving on because uh, I know we only have, you know, three or four more minutes. Um, so let's talk about what we could do like, oh, sorry, Damien. No, I mean, the the trauma team did come down also really quick. I was surprised. Sometimes we're waiting a little more than that. So I was happy to see her uh, there. Yeah, and, Dr. Kate, um, that was great. Yeah, and also, um, you know, she came in and like kind of quiet and took a hand off. Sometimes it's been, you know, people, they just come in like take over. So this, I thought this was collaborative. Great, so Shayla, I know you're working with us to try to make sure we get things back up the system. So maybe a, a kind of a props to the trauma team, really appreciate their coming down so quickly. Um, okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what we could do 1% better, 2% better, 5% better. I know we can always get better. So thoughts from the team on things 
that uh, you'd like to see happening different? Uh, Damien, maybe I'll start with you. And then others of you, please chat to us or chime in. Well, this is an area that I'm really struggling with, Mary. I, you know, I, I was a bit frustrated on the, you know, chest tube setup, and there's sort of two parts to it. One is I, I just know you guys know how to do trauma, and I, and I thought you'd be like one step ahead of the patient or one step ahead of me, uh, almost like I wouldn't have to, like say let's set up for a chest tube because they have a gunshot wound to the chest, like. I'd rather open up those kids, have them by the bedside and, and be ready to do it than if we don't need it, fine. It's just a little waste of material. So okay, so, so one, percent, one, one thing is yeah. as soon as you ask for it, so one of us could make sure to have it at the bedside, okay. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like, where I used to work, they just had the kids there in the recess room instead of having to get them like that's an extra step maybe we don't need maybe we should we're a, we're a trauma center level two trauma center we should just have chest tubes on okay with a knife on top that way we're not looking for that when we really need it right and uh got some ideas from neil here that we could have possibly been a little more systematic in how we work through things and you know, like when you ordered the chest tube closed loop communication or when I didn't, you know, as soon as I did realize it, I could have said, I'm getting it. So thanks for those ideas, Neil. I think we could beef that up. Um, uh, yeah, and then I'm hearing more listening for the team leader directions. Um, what would that look like, the classroom? Uh, thoughts on what could we concretely do? How would, how would you know we were listening? Just wanna be really concrete here. Close loop. Okay. All right. So acknowledge orders, etc. Okay, guys, I want to move on. We only have a, a minute or so left. Um, so part of why we're doing this is, you know, this has been a tough couple years and, you know, dealing with the patients we're dealing with now and, and, and the workload and, the, you know, short staffing. How's everybody doing, you know, uh, Damien, but also like observers, you know, how are you guys holding up? Any, any things that this, seeing this trauma recess um, brings up for you about how you're doing, anything we can do to support each other? So how are you doing or things to support each other? Damien, I have to say, I, I, I really appreciate your willingness to do this. It makes me feel like good, like we're gonna get better at doing things. So thanks for the time here. I'm, just, uh, I'm putting some stuff in the chat box from people who are talking back here. Okay. Right, we're listening. Yeah, whenever I see interpersonal violence, like I'm always interested, like what's the address? Like what's the part of town where it's happening? And, you know, it, it, there's just like a real sad side of this. Um, so I'm thinking a bit about that. The other thing is, uh, Mary, you know, like, I might have been snippy or like quick and maybe seemed frustrated initially, but I just want to say I like like working with you guys. Like I think we were doing the best we could, and I'm uh, you know ready to like move on to the the rest of the shift. And I hope that's like you know not a sour spot. If if I stepped on anyone's toes or or anything was awkward, it's just in the heat of the moment. And I'm open to uh, getting better at that. Okay, sounds good. So last thing, folks, let's just lasso up. Um, what we what were our items that we want to hand off to uh, Shayla and the others who are so I think we were thankful that the communication with trauma was quick and excellent. We want to figure out a way to have a chest tube right in the room and accessible. Anything else that anybody heard in terms of uh, workflow adaptation or workflow keeping up the good things? Anybody want to throw in? And that they came down quickly. That was good too. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, blood bank presents with uncrossed matched blood. Okay, uh, great. Okay, folks, listen, thanks for your time. I know we've got a busy shift. Uh, everybody, uh, see you later and uh, we'll keep, keep trying to do these. Okay, this simulation is over. Just gonna rename myself here. All right, folks, uh, Damien, I think we can move on from this. I think.
they know there's a script available. Okay, folks, I'd like to shift gears for a moment and just talk about why conversations like this one we just had are important. And I'm gonna introduce a quick uh, a, a model and then I'd like to ask for about 60 seconds of texting back to me about your take on what I'm saying and relating it to what we just did. So we have a theory in my field, organizational behavior that is um, very uh, robust and uh, has been shown to play out. And that is, although we tend to think of the culture in our emergency department or our hospital or our medical school or our residency as fairly static, that static culture is constantly reinforced or transformed by every single small conversation we have every day. So Damien, if you don't mind clicking, the conversations that we have, uh, one more, uh, create the cultures that we live in. So every time that I invite someone to speak up and receive that speaking up with warmth and gratitude, I'm creating a culture that's more psychologically safe for speaking up. Every time I bark at someone when they give me some feedback or they try to help me by pointing something out, I might be reinforcing a, a culture of silencing and indirectness. So one more click, Damien. So this feedback loop of how conversation drives culture can be virtuous, opening conversations, supportive conversations, caring conversations, can increase a caring culture and open culture. And then that open culture in turn creates more uh, conversation of the same sort. So that's a virtuous cycle. Similarly though, it can be vicious and we all know that. We've been in those meetings where uh, somebody uh, silences someone else or it's clear that if you actually say what you're really thinking, that's a dangerous thing for your career. That reinforces a culture of silencing and indirectness the silencing of in indirectness further suppresses conversation. So if I could just come to you all for uh, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, what was your take on, albeit simulated, the possible impact of the type of conversation we just had, that little mini debriefing on culture? Thoughts? Anybody? Uh, I think uh, generally, advice the critique was very well received and so I think that would encourage people to continue to uh, give those kind of comments during and by the way those of you who are dialing in not from the classroom feel free to text to us or unmute and blurt out yeah unmute definitely we'd love to hear from you Opportunities for improvement and not having to come back in that way, you know, increases the next person's chance. Yeah, so um, uh, Jenny and uh, Damian, we, uh, uh, some, some couple of our um, residents and students here are talking about how um, you can see that circle just even in the scenario that you talked about when, when the critique is well received and someone is able to, to, to talk about a uh, an opportunity from improvement, and that's received in a positive manner that encourages people to be able to, to bring up problems. Because I think it's easy to shove things under the table because you're afraid of hurting someone's feelings. And in a heated moment, it may not come out right because you haven't really had the time to pick your words or pick your language. And I think that can be inhibitory. Um, and uh, But if if you know that people are gonna take it the right way and not be offended, not be hurt, not be angry, you're more likely to um, work together kind of to brainstorm on how things can, can continue to improve as a system, um, which is kind of the angle that we're, we all need to kind of get, um, get behind. Wow, thank you. And thank you to the team in the classroom for that observation, because I think it shifts to really an important thing, which is it's not only about the debriefing, it's about the receiving uh, of the feedback. And Damien, I think this uh, supports some of the arguments you'll make shortly about just the importance of just getting started. All right, Damien, let's go ahead. 
uh, if you don't mind. So I'd like to build on what you all said and just provide brief, brief data to support this idea that conversation actually drives culture. So in research that I did with colleagues at MIT, we looked at a series of chemical processing and nuclear power plants. And what we found was that suppressing information about operations tended to create problems. This is a $16 million uh, uh, fire uh, explosion in a uh, petrochemical generating plant, no deaths, no injuries. But in the root cause analysis of this event, what was discovered was that the conversations were all about production and money-making and that conversations around culture uh, safety tended to always be in the background. The RCA, the root cause analysis made a difference, but this whole culture of this plant shifted when the plant manager at the next meeting, when presented proudly with the high production numbers of the month said, okay, thanks, but what safety corners did we have to cut to meet those metrics? And from that day forth, combined with the root cause analysis, that shift in conversation caused a market shift in approach to safety uh, within the plant. Next slide, please, Damien. The I second, do, yeah. I do, I do, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, this idea that the conversations that change culture are both on the ground amongst clinicians, but also when we're administrators and leaders talking with each other and, and with clinicians. So I think in the, both of those are in the model. Thank you, Damien, for acknowledging that shift of context. So the other thing I'd like to highlight is most of us in clinical medicine, academic medicine, nursing, interprofessional, have been socialized to be nice. So we are worried that if we have a critical insight, that that's gonna blow up badly, uh, like this grenade here. And so we kind of try to decorate around the grenade with nice words and, and uh, so on. Damien, if you don't mind clicking. So what we find is these hidden judgment conversations, hiding what I really think, even though I think it is helpful, actually reinforces a culture of Again, conveying that talking about errors is shameful rather than a beautiful opportunity to learn and get better or an opportunity to change the culture to focus on getting better at getting better. And so this case study of ours looked at how that core dilemma of I wanna help you, but I don't wanna harm you actually has this unintended consequence of degrading the culture of conversations. Uh, click one more time, Damien, and go on, please. We can just go on. Then the last thing I'd like to highlight is the amazing, uh, and at least for my career, and I think many of us in healthcare indirectly, work of Amy Edmondson and team from Harvard Business School on psychological safety. But what Amy's found is that the how we invite feedback has a huge impact on the culture of learning to learn, the culture of getting better at getting better. She focused on what she called leader inclusiveness behaviors, which is I'm the team lead in a trauma recess. I'm the surgeon in a procedure in the OR. I'm the senior nurse. I'm the this person or that person. Inviting people's input. I might be missing something, let me know. Receiving that with warmth and graciousness. Uh, crucial, crucial, crucial to receive it well. However, what our research is starting to show is that in everyday practice, each one of us has the power to transform culture by inviting feedback, regardless of our status in the hierarchy. So that is another way that conversations open up a culture of um, learning from each other. And so that's the groundwork, that's the bedrock, that's the field into which these ideas that Damien is gonna share with you now kind of get planted. <laughs> you have a couple more. Oh, sorry, David. Somebody put in the uh, in the chat that shit sandwich is a perfect example of that kind of silencing sort of culture. Um, oh, Damien, I'll, thank you. I forgot about these. So what we're trying to do here, folks, is move very simply from a culture where I'm catching you out, gotcha, and that has a lot of destructive impact, to a culture of where I've gotcha, I'm holding you, I'm here for you, and uh, that's the shift that we think clinical event debriefing can help us with.
Go ahead, Damien. Over to you. Uh, so I, I think, you know, Jenny, you're helping us see how meaningful conversations can be and debriefing a proposed as a potential new type of formalized conversation that's really would be a game changer in our work. And colleague of ours at Brigham, when he was at Penn, studied debriefing rates of clinical events, critical events in anesthesia. So they, they considered triggers really truly critical events like failed airway, death on the OR table, unexpected ICU, massive transfusion protocol. Everybody agreed uh, really that debrief, we should be debriefing those critical events and including their society and yet only 49% of them were debriefed. And, and now we're really trying to move the needle in anesthesia to how can we get better at that? Interestingly, in this study, the ones that were the least debriefed were the ones that had to do with communication and interpersonal. So we're kind of a double problem because we're not only not debriefing enough of the critical events, we're also not debriefing the ones that are really intervenable. So it, this is my new shop, um, Boston Medical Center. We see about 110,000 a year. This is our um, old but nice resus bay. We have three of these and they're in constant flow. and I used to work in New York at Bellevue, and this was pretty typical, as I'm sure is of your recess room, the aftermath uh, of a resuscitation. So th this particular day, um, like in the video you saw, sick trauma patient, a lot of good care was given. It's not perfect. Like I always say, I'm from Argentina originally, so when you're dancing tango at a high level, you're going to step on each other's toes a little bit, but that's just because you're dancing fast. And so it, um, any other tango fans? Uh, okay, you don't have to say, um, but uh, you know, once once this uh, event happens, I, I I'm ready to like you know need to do something. So there's some groundwork to getting started, really, and that's a personal in each of us. I, I know that immediately after an event, a resuscitation, an intubation, uh, a argument with a patient, a family that leaves AMA. Um, we've had a lot of, we've had increasing clinicians being assaulted. Really, you can, you can really think about what's important in your context in terms of identifying targets for, for triggers for, an, for a debriefing, but they're important triggers such that immediately after, I'm not ready. I need to first get centered, get settled. I personally need to run my list. I've got 30 patients under my care. So I, I've just been involved in the event. So I need to make sure I know uh, what else is going on. And then I move towards gathering the team. And I'm, in that moment, I'm also doing some of my own reflection and processing. And, and I think also getting into that mindset of, okay, I'm going to go uh, try to gather the team, offer a five to 10 minute debriefing, and I'm going to uh, acknowledge that we're busy. I'm going to do it um, uh, it, with an effort to learn and listen um, more so than tell and correct. Even, even if in, in my initial impression, I was feeling like there were things that I wish would have gone differently. I'm really trying to reset myself to, to being open um, to other people's experiences. I'm going to help myself with a script because it's easy to get off track. And I'm going to go in um, for listening, for affirming, problem solving and documenting. I think one of the most frustrating things is when you keep things in and don't share them. I think even more frustrating is when you share them and nothing happens. So for me, as a when I'm calling a debriefing or when I'm gathering people, I say, hey, I feel like I'm committed to getting people's ideas to the right place. And so I'm really going to document that and, and bring that to the post debriefing moments where I need to carry that information. But I'm going to do that with a spirit of confidentiality, right? So, of course, it's not fully confidential. Like everybody's going to know who was at that massive GI bleed or resuscitation. But when I communicate the findings, like um, it would have been better if uh, the whole team arrived at once. I'm not going to say it would have been better if Jenny arrived early. So you're going to mm -hmm. you're going to translate. Um, the information that's gathered into actionable, helpful ideas. Um, 
and, and it doesn't have to be a, uh, I don't want you to think that it's a, that I think it's a sterile stylized conversation. It doesn't have to be sitting around a table. It doesn't have, it can be sitting around a computer. It could be uh, in a conference room. It could be even in the dirty trauma bay while um, other people are tidying up and uh, getting for, ready for the next one. Uh, in terms of the structure, I, I do think it's important to, to greet everyone and check in because just because I'm ready to start doesn't mean everyone's ready to start. And, and I want to make sure for myself when I'm debriefing that connecting with people and seeing them is, is my primary focus as opposed to getting the debriefing done. That's for me been a little bit of a mindset just because I'm so passionate about having the conversations. I want to make sure I'm capturing successes and generate ideas for improvement, and I and I'm explicit about that. I I want to make sure that 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 is the prime goal as a because I think like I said, debriefing has a bad name, right? Debriefing is about learning. Debriefing is about feedback and critique, and and it's really great. But in the moment after an event in the clinical setting where you were trying your best to help a patient, not everybody might be ready for that. I'm focused on supporting the team. Um, and I want to, like I said, make sure I'm going to do the circle of action items, document them, activate follow-up roles and tasks. Jamie, I want to just say a word about the script really quickly. Go for it. Folks, you saw Mary's character use a script. It's a little mechanical. It's a little awkward. But I want to let you know that there's a wonderful research supporting the, the idea that scripts actually make people better. Uh, it, it, it makes them more comfortable, able to just even initiate the conversation and peers are incredibly forgiving. They don't really give a bleep about the fact that the other peers using a script. So uh, it humanizes it. And I just encourage you to feel good about it. And I think it, it also keeps me from some of like either old habits, bad habits or habits from other from other conversation events. And so um, that would help. If you want some kind of um, extra language besides the top level, this is ideas from Chris Rusin, one of our colleagues at CMS. He's the senior director for international programs and education leadership. He likes to say things like, look, we're going to succeed if everyone feels heard and respected, if we explore the successes and challenges. I, I like that scripting. In terms of supporting the conversations, he really asks people, how are they feeling right now? Um, and I like that focused question because it, it, it allows people not to dwell on, um, he's not checking in on well, how do you think that went or dwelling on what happened, but really checking in on right now, how are you doing? Because he wants to know that before moving on. And I like that a lot. Um, let's talk about difficult things that are happening. I, I, I think that's a really encouraging uh, phrase that I am um, trying to use. It, it takes a bit more courage and just getting the conversation started is difficult enough in terms of um, getting people there. This is, this is really uh, taking it up one level, but if you're ready, I think that's a good one for you. So in summary, I think, you know, in terms of debriefing in the ED, there's a mindset and self prep. Don't underestimate that. Gather, gathering the team with a humble offer. I'm not. I'm not promising that this debriefing is going to change anyone's life. That it's going to, uh, you know, all of a sudden fix all the problems. But it's it's the micro conversations that affect culture. So I'm committed to, committed to having them as much as I can. And like you all say, I try to bring my learning self uh, to them, so I can listen, support, and I can transfer. Use my um, authority as a as a attending in the department, faculty member to transfer document for further action. But I think anyone can can really take that role. You saw nurses. There's uh, several papers describing nurse-led debriefings. Um, there's in the anesthesia work we're doing with Alex Ariaga. It's the resident that's initiating. So um, we've seen different models for this. I think in terms, I got two couple more slides and then I think we're gonna, and I'll let you know we're wrapping up towards a Q&A moment. So, you know, one of the things in terms of getting started that I think has been really helpful for me came from the simulation literature, which 
a few years ago, I think this is to, um, 2017 already, uh, Peter Diekman and others started to write about, let's learn from success, debriefing positive performance. And I think that's been a really helpful area for me to, um, to get started with debriefing in the clinical environment. Positive feedback or positive reinforcement is really so rare. Um, and so you can just initiate a gathering, a quick debriefing, just to let people know how supported you felt or how uh, well you thought it went and to hear from other people if you really, if you, we used to say, oh, if you have a short amount of time, start with a plus delta debriefing. Now I'm saying, if you have a short amount of time, just start with a plus. Just getting together to talk about what's working is a good way to start. Don't have to do the shit sandwich. Don't have to uh, do more than that. In terms of implementing clinical debriefings, I think um, one of the key things that is being done is to involve people from all levels of leadership, including leaders from uh, the department, the debriefing program, but also all the clinicians from different professions. It's not gonna, the way you're gonna debrief in your environment is not gonna look the same when you're mature as when it started. Be willing to prototype, pilot, iterate. You certainly don't have to use the circle up script. There's other modes and methods that have been published and um, they're easy to search and uh, getting started with one and seeing what fits. Definitely, I would recommend defining those triggers in advance so that you have a shared idea of when you're going to get together and for what purpose. And then name it creatively. If debriefing has a great reputation in your institution, call it debriefing. Uh, we're, I mentioned, we're not calling it huddles. Uh, we're not sure exactly, but we know we want to find the name. At Brigham, we were doing a brief uh, and that, that was a nice name because we, we made it clear that it was going to be short. Um, and we had a cool acronym around that. Uh, colleagues in Europe are using talk as their uh, let's get together for a talk. Pretty straightforward. Um, so I, I think cuddles, that, that, may, that may work. Uh, colleagues have also written, uh, formally written tips about implementation. And I have to say, I really agree with all of these and, and you can access those. Um, but a lot of the common, a lot of their tips have been embedded into our comments here. And we hope that describing a bit of the how-to um, has come through for you. And uh, we really thank you so much for sticking with us through the presentation and, and for your participation. We really hope you both enjoyed and got something out of that. And would love to turn it now towards uh, your reactions, your comments, uh, and any feedback. Jenny and I are always uh, ready to learn. So, Shayla, thank you so much to you and the organizing committee for the invitation. And uh, take it to you to uh, organize here for the next four or five minutes. Yeah. I mean, you want to stop sharing, and maybe we can invite people to turn on their cameras if they are can safely do so. Go ahead, Shayla. Yeah, guys, um, do you guys have anything that you want to bring up something and a debriefing that you witnessed? We don't have a formal program here is what I should say. And some 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 moments are happening court either informally or, um, you know, a handful of us have debriefed intermittently when we've had time because we feel comfortable doing so. And so does anybody want to share any moments, some positive moments from debriefing that they've seen or experienced or anything else? I have a different question. Oh. So I have a little bit of like um, education within organizational leadership, specifically in the biosciences. My question is, I feel like it's always been this debate, you know, do you end on a good note or do you end with change? And I think it's one of those things that was touched on a few times. It seems like your structure is more like end with something that we can change, something we can improve on, something like that. But I think, I guess it's more of a question. Have you found anything that one is benef more beneficial than the other? And if so, I'm assuming that it's end on a note of change um, from the way it was set up, or it's just you know one of those things that depends on the situation and going forward. Amy, you want to take a want me to take a quick uh, sentence swing on that and hand it to you? Sure. I'm not yeah. sure if I have a necessarily yeah. looked at it, but I have one. Oh. If, if what we care most about is behavioral change and or organizational uh, change, um, setting a clear goal and commitment has been shown to 
uh, improve that. So those personal improvement goals or, or uh, as a collective, we're gonna focus on this. So if that's your main goal, then that's a good thing to end on. If you're trying to focus on um, cohesion and psychological protection and support, I haven't seen any evidence that it matters that that's the last thing that happens. I do think it's important that it happen at some point. And so thank you for your great question. I think um, I, was, okay, I could just say from practical experience, if you start with the negatives, the whole tone, like the what could be changed, the whole tone turns towards critique and you have a very hard, I have a hard time getting back to it, but what worked well. And I really do care about that celebration in the, in our management of the aggressive behavior patient. Um, one of the key outcomes for me is that no one got hurt, patients or staff. Um, and so I wanna celebrate that early on. And that's, that's giving us the, the reason to debrief is to make sure we've checked in on each other and that no one got hurt. My second thing is um, at the end of the debriefing, when I'm recapping, okay, so these are the four system level things I'm going to transmit. It may seem kind of a transactional action oriented moment, but I think it's also doing a second thing, which is I've heard you guys, what you said matters. And so um, I just don't want it to be misconstrued like we're just focused on the system improvement. I think it's, it's giving the feedback that you've been heard. Yeah, it, it, I think it makes the, the conversation seem a little bit productive. And especially sometimes in those moments where a lot of stuff went badly, um, uh, to have a, a silver lining on that, like, okay, well, we learned that we need to have X, Y, and Z in the department or in the code cart. And that's gonna make this next crappy situation run more smoothly and we're not gonna feel so torn up about it. Um, how many, how many times? How many times you meant to write a safety report but never got to it, and then you don't have the MR number or remember who was there, and it just never happened. So it's an opportunity. Right, 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 right. Um, and I think it usually end um, by thanking everybody. So it's not like a like exactly a positive, but it it just makes you appreciate everybody and give every person. A, a moment where they feel valuable. And I think um, the tendency is, you know, all of us here are either physicians or soon to be physicians, right? So um, we have an inherent position of, of power. Um, no matter how nice you are, you're still that person. And it's gonna be an, a little bit intimidating to some of the other team members, especially people who are like further down the pike, like PCAs and techs and all these other people were doing the hard work, doing all the compressions the whole time for like an hour, you know? Um, and, uh, and so they hear some feedback, like, you know, your compressions were really good or maybe your compressions weren't that good in a moment, but you responded when I told you to, to pick up the pace, you know, and, um, and it's really hard work. And we're so glad that you, cause that made the difference in getting Rosk for that patient. Um, the, those, those and then letting them hear that and letting them be able to talk about, well, you know, I actually sprayed my elbow last week, you know, be able to say that, right? They, otherwise it kind of, um, you know, makes, makes everyone feel like there's sort of like the top of the pyramid and there's the bottom of the pyramid. So um, anything from attendings over here? I struggle with is getting everybody together after. <laughs> everybody seems to just go. Everybody's got patients to check on. And um, so I find I'm doing it with the residents and not the other staff. We all kind of sit down after and talk about what went well. Um, but trying to get other staff members, key staff members involved. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I did skip that. I, I did start out with saying perfect is the enemy of good. I If you can grab a few people, great. Uh, I think notice where you're doing it. If you're doing it, if you guys have segregated desks and you're doing it at your desk, consider just moving to an empty trauma bay or do it near the charge nurse station. I found even when I just get started with a crowd, people will gather and they want to know what, you know, what are all these people talking about? Um, and maybe just try to grab a couple of people from different professions first, as opposed to um, uh, everybody. But keep it up, you know, that you're talking with the residents 
good. Some kind of like, like once we get the patient stabilized, we're like, all right, let's get them to the next destination. CT scanner, cat lab, ICU, you name it. Everybody's in work doing that, whether it's dropping an OG tube, dropping a pulley, but everybody still has jobs to do. And we go, well, we can do it afterwards. And then that afterwards turns into our next patient that walks in the door. And now it's flies on the wall and good luck gathering everyone. So if you don't do it immediately, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So did, could, were you guys able to hear that? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think getting started in those in-between times, the CT scanner is a great time that, you know, there's Sometimes I have one nurse in there getting the monitors and the IV so sorted, but they are going to come out eventually, and it's going to take a while while you're looking for those early images. I think you can get started. Um, that's a good opportunity. I think also, like I said, and, and you're right, there's a risk that that there's going to be the next critical patient. Um, so that is that is a thing. One of the things Jenny mentioned about our work with the neuroscience ICU and with some of our end of shift debriefing is that you can also, especially if you have an intact team over the course of a shift, you could uh, gather everyone towards the end of the shift as you're preparing for rounds to say, okay, let's spend 10 minutes looking at the whole shift. We've done several cases um, together. Let's talk about what was working, what was not, what could we pick out from each one of them, anything we need to communicate. I had a rough um, pediatric seizure um, patient who wound up doing okay, but there were a lot of missteps um, with getting meds and things like that in a timely fashion. And, um, and so, you know, once we got the patient kind of stabilized, I said, you know, everybody was busy and stressed out. And I was like, listen, I want to have a talk about um, what happened. And, uh, but I know like we got to, we got to arrange for transfer. We got to, we got a, a bunch of other people that are like waiting other, other patients who've been just like waiting for us to finish with this critical patient. I was like, let's regroup in about 15 minutes. Um, and we needed, to, we needed, I mean, the patient wasn't registered properly. So we needed registration. We needed pharmacy. So I sent messages out to all those people and said, listen, we're planning on having a group discussion in about 15 minutes um, just so we can um, talk about what happened, um, figure out what, what what went well and what what kind of things we want to improve for next time if you guys are available we want everybody on board um it i promise won't be very long and so we kind of did that where we're like listen it's busy now but we, this is important and we're going to try to take carve out a moment when we get caught up so well um, I was just in Boston and Burr, it's cold up there, but thank you so much for this conversation and getting it started. And for the interns, I think that this is an awesome opportunity for a collaborative quality um, project between us nursing and implementation in the emergency department. So I pose that as one option to you for the quality projects as we move forward. And I think we could probably get some great information um, from both of our fabulous speakers to help that process get started. I'll just say something really quickly and simply. One single small thing that might come up at the end of a debriefing, like let's make sure we have the chest tube in this space, or let's make sure we have a hypothermia kit, everything's collected together. Actually making that happen, communicating to the right people, causing the changes is a thing. And let's people who are doing quality and safety learn what are all the different steps, what are all the relationships. So I think it's a great idea. And let us know how it goes. Um, so I we're, it right. You've got the cuddles committee now, Damien. Yeah, it's a win. Okay. It out. Um, wonderful, well, thank you. Shayla, let's be in touch. Thank you again.